Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk, number 169 for February 10th, 2014. On today's show, Joe has a question about downdraft tables. Bob wants to know if he should powder coat his hand planes. Alan is having trouble with drilling end grain. Matthew is pondering veneer versus solid wood for his dining table. Timber Doc is considering liquid hide glue for his next project. And Billy is concerned about lubricants staining his wood. And yes, I worded it that way intentionally. I was wondering about that. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I knew. I knew you did that. <laughs> you guys know me too well. I uh, am so surprised every time. <laughs> genuinely. Yep. Before we get to all that good stuff, though, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. With a TS55 REQ track saw, your first cut is the finish cut. See how the new TS55 delivers straight, glue-ready, splinter-free results in the shop and on the job site at FestoolUSA.com. All right, so before we get started with what's on the bench, just want to mention real quick, we are streaming live with Alpha Geek Radio. If you go to alphageekradio.com, you could listen to that, or also the woodwhisperer.com slash live. I have some very, uh, well, it's not the cleanest looking arrangement of links, but they're there. If you want to click them, you could listen to the audio on your desktop or on a mobile device, and it sounds really good. I do it all the time, because Alpha Geek Radio is like one of my new, it's like my new Howard Stern, although it's not Howard Stern. It's like what you do with Howard Stern. You listen to it all day long. <laughs> and it's just, except for it's a bunch of geeks, there's uh, there's no boobs. Um, you know, it's a little little more vanilla, but it's good. It's good stuff. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll listen to something <laughs> else then. And, and there's about a 30-second delay from us talking right now and what's broadcasting, Matt. So there is the ability to dump out if necessary. <laughs> oh, in that Although, case. I'll, if we dump out, we can't come back. I don't know. So I don't just, I don't really have a cough button here or anything to uh, to do that on on the fly. But all right, let's jump into what's on the bench. I'll go first. My bench is quite empty. Actually, my bench has a collection of chair parts on it. 
Uh, I went to the William Ing School last week and uh, was on Facebook posting pictures and sharing sharing the experience with people as much as I reasonably could. But this was my kind of keeping a couple of my promises. You guys know we we do this like every year. We talk about what our um, uh, we don't want to really call them resolutions, but the things we plan to accomplish in the next year. And one of those uh, bucket list projects for me was the Blacker House. Uh, Blacker House chair. And this is uh, something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, I think chairs are very difficult just to begin with, just in general as a functional item. A chair has a lot of jobs to do well, and it has to be designed really well. But in particular, there are a few chairs in existence that I think are on a higher echelon of um, of craftsmanship and design. And I think Maloof, of course, the Maloof Rocker is up there. Any sculpted rocker, I think, fits in that category. But also the Blacker House chair. Um, I was talking to William about this, and uh, he even said, he's like, this is absolutely, without a doubt, my my favorite chair uh, in existence. So if you've never seen it, just look it up. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful chair, technically challenging, and a heck of a lot of fun to build. Um, this class was eight days, which is the longest class I've ever taken, and we didn't even finish the chairs. Did Mateo recognize you when you got home? <laughs> Let me tell you, my kid's or weird. Or did you recognize him? Maybe it was that long. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a little weirdo. Um, he, When you leave for a long time, and this has been, I thought it was because he was just like when he was really, really young. But no, he's doing it now too. It's almost like he punishes you for leaving. So <laughs> he's he's fine while you're gone. And this happened when Nicole uh, went to Vegas recently. When you come back, his sleep cycle just goes nuts and he's like, it's not like he's even glad to see you. He's like, it's it's a really weird thing. And then after he gets used to you being home, then he's back to normal and he's glad to see you and, and you know, daddy this, daddy that. But until then, it's kind of weird. Makes me wonder what's going on with that kid. <laughs> Who is the stranger? Yeah, it's kind of odd. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. I'm curious. Uh, eight days, you go to this class and as ex- you know, fairly experienced woodworkers, uh, with the complexity of this piece, would you expect to come home with a finished chair? Or would you would you be upset if you didn't come home with a finished chair? Well, let's, let me let me pose this to you first before we actually answer that question. For those who maybe aren't familiar with the Blacker House chair, what what one or two aspects of it is like the most unique thing, the most challenging thing about it, perhaps, because maybe that would really put it in perspective. Okay, there's very few, if any, right angles. Or straight lines. So a vast majority, like when you're really looking on how do you build this thing, what your eye is going to do is look for all the straight surfaces and 90 degree reference points. And there aren't, there just aren't that many to to be found. Um, Your legs are cut as trapezoids. So my Lord. Yeah. So there's no 90 degree legs in the front and everything is based off of that as it kind of like flares out Um, the arms, you know, what may appear flat it's actually tapered from the back to the front. So the arm is thicker in the back. It's thinner in the front. Um, you have this curved element that goes and joins up to the leg. The vertical of the leg joins up to the arm. But you have this very complex shape that has to be cut out of it. But there's so many curves and things to cut in this piece. And that's just, you know, the joint from the arm to the leg. Uh, we're not even talking about the crest rail joint to the to the rear legs, how that joins up. And then, of course, it's green and green. So everything has, uh, you know, the splines and plugs all over the place. There's inlay on the back. And, of course, you've got a curved back slat. So there's bent lamination involved, too. You know, I'm just going to put this out there. The original designer of this must have really disliked the person that he was going to have build it. And he was hoping they were going to fail miserably. They'll never do it. <laughs> exactly. What were you going to say, Shannon? <laughs> I think that this 
kind of you mentioned Maloof and sculpted rockers earlier. I think this takes it up even a further notch because, you know, with a, a sculpted chair, you can kind of put it together and then create the shape afterwards. Yeah. You know, it goes together blocky and then you make all those curves and stuff like that. This doesn't have that sculpted element to it. You have to like create that curve and that trapezoid and then cut the joinery. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's definitely the most technically complicated thing I've ever made. So, you know, once you get into it, you start to see like, even though, you know, a couple of days in, we're kind of ahead of schedule. Uh, you know that by the time you get to the end, you've just got some tedious things that are just going to take a lot of time uh, right. to do. So it's a lot of details left. I wasn't too surprised that we still had work to do, but I always am curious for folks who haven't taken classes before if they're often disappointed when they realize that, you know, in some classes, uh, you're just not going to get, you're not going to be able to finish. You're going to have a collection of parts to be finished at home. Um, and I was actually talking to William about this, that a lot of schools, you know, they kind of know their completion percentage rate and it's, it's not uncommon for classes, especially complex projects to have, you know, 40, 50% completion rates. See, I would think I'm, I'm total of the opposite perspective. I would be really surprised that people are laboring under the impression that I'm going to come home with a finished project. Um, because, well, first of all, certainly not finished. Finished, finished. Well, yeah, and I don't mean finished um, by uh, finish applied. That pretty much right. never happens. But, I mean, I guess it depends upon the project. But there is no way going into this that I would think all the ebony plugs would be in place. Right. You know, because <laughs> now I assume that, that William probably went over kind of how to do the plug thing and then just said, okay, you're on your own. Yeah. Um, I expect – my expectations are that I would be able to build that project on my own in my own shop. Um, and that doesn't always fly. Um, yeah. and that question I have for you about that is, you know, is this one of those things because of the level of complexity is so high, I assume probably William had some jigs and things like that already put together to help build it. Well, and yeah. could you recreate it when you went back to your own shop? Could I? Yes. Would I? No. <laughs> it, the, it's there are so many jigs constructed to make this thing possible and if uh in fact one of the guys in the class mike has every intention uh, to go home and actually reproduce this project again and of course what's he have to do well he has to take meticulous notes and measurements of every jig that was used and mind you all of these jigs were designed to be used with the multi-router it doesn't mean it's excluding people who don't have one because you just turn a multi-router 90 degrees and what is it a handheld router you just kind of have to redesign the jig a little bit to hold the workpiece properly so it is a significant challenge to be able to do that back at home and recreate you're going to spend weeks just making jigs and you know how jigs are they're it's great if you can make them but you have to test them and you have to make sure that everything lines up properly and works right so he may have a lot of extra work uh, ahead of him um, but honestly this is the only place where you could take this class uh, most other places won't touch it. Um, you've got someone like Daryl Peart who makes them, um, you know, and he's even uh, just sort of third hand uh, conversations that I've heard um, that he doesn't know how it gets done in that period of time that he couldn't working his quickest, couldn't make it in that period of time. Well, obviously we couldn't make it in that period of time either <laughs> from start to finish, but really 95% of the work is done. Uh, this is something that is a lot to bite off in, in the form of a class. And William just has it down to a science that he's able to get everybody through it. Um, but no, I don't think I'll be making this one myself at home. Uh, it would just be a lot of jig making and trial and error to get those jigs perfected. So do you know in the blacker house, how many, is this like a dining set? 
Because I know Daryl makes a side chair. I know that much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, without the arms. To um, my knowledge, there were two. Around, it okay. wasn't. It wasn't like a whole set. It was a limited number. So <laughs> one like, or two. That that was when the Hall brothers told the Green brothers to take a hike after they're like, they made two of these. They're, they're like, like, you right, know what, guys? You, you know, See ya. you guys are a holes with your designs here. <laughs> you think it's so easy sitting at your desk with your candlelight? Um, yeah, it's. I actually thought about that too because building it is cool, and I think most of us who have a little bit of experience woodworking, we've got the skills uh, to build this stuff because it's all variations of mortise and tenons, lining parts up, flushing them, and using a jig to cut stuff in it. I mean, really, if you boil it down to the basics. And I think we all have the capacity to do that. What we don't all have the capacity to do is to to like bring this thing from nothing to existence. And that's what the Green Brothers did in their designs. And I just can't even imagine the mindset of how that was even possible. And what I'd love to see, I would love to have been a fly on the wall, seeing the interaction between the designer and the builder, uh, the halls and the greens, how these things came to life. Cause I can't imagine they just handed them a finished plan. I think there must've been input back and forth of how we can bring this thing to life and what we might need to change. And I would just love to experience that sort of interaction between what I consider some of the highest level woodworking I've seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. So <clears throat> that's how I spent my time and I'm hopefully going to like, this is one of those things that if I don't get on this right away to finish it, it's probably going to sit there and shrink wrap on the side of the shop and I'm never going to get to it. So I've got to do it now. Otherwise it's going to just linger. <laughs> that was, that was my thought is, is, <sighs> I mean, I've only attended classes where it's all technique based. I haven't yeah. done any type of project class. Have I? No, haven't done that yet. And that's always my concern. It's like even when I walk away from a technique class, it's one of those if I don't get back in the shop and at least <laughs> try those things two or three more times to make sure that I've got it down pat, it's completely lost. So I can't imagine going for this full immersion, coming back and then being like, you know, I'm going to take about a week off and yeah. just get my mind wrapped around this and then coming back and looking at those parts and thinking – I know I've got this plan, but none of this makes sense. (laughs) Well, yeah. And when you're working eight days a week, uh, basically eight days in a row with a bunch of other really motivated guys, and that is all you're there to do, you really get into this productive, super productive mindset. But as soon as you get back home, it's like, you know, (laughs) totally deflated. (laughs) Exactly. It's uh, and it's very difficult to get going, even for the simplest tasks. Uh, So anyway, before I move on, I just want to give a little shout out to Brett, Mike and Ron, who were the uh, three guys in the class with me. It was a fairly small class and that was good because we got to do a lot more talking and uh, getting into the details of this stuff. But it was a lot of fun taking a class with those guys. Maybe. A suggestion for William is to potentially have a reunion class where actually what it is is an opportunity for you to save face and bring back the parts you haven't finished (laughs) and do it there together. Come back in on the weekend. That's right. (laughs) It's a much shorter uh, length, but we get a lot done. There there you go. Well, good stuff anyway. Uh, Shannon, how about you? I want to go take a class now. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) That's awesome. Jellies. Well, uh, yes, I am very jealous because I spent very little time in my shop over the last week because mm. it's cold. Damn cold. Dang cold. Um, yeah, we lost power for about four days. I think it was four days. I don't oh, know. Oh, it was electricity that was out? Because I saw something about a blackout and I just assumed that you were just getting drunk. Yeah, well. He does that, that too. <laughs> Might have kept me warm, actually. Explains a few now, episodes it's, of the hand tool school. It's the great irony of my shop. I don't need power to do any work. Um, but when it's 15 degrees outside, um, it's rather cold. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I actually went into the shop at one point and I left 
with some parts that I was like, ah, this is scrap. I'll just go burn that. And then I was like, you know what? I need to not go back in the shop because the tendency to grab stuff and burn it was too strong. So <laughs> I stayed out of the shop. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Oh, that's too funny. I, How about you, Matt? Do you want to go? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was letting you take it, but... Awkward pause. I could walk you into it if you want. Whatever works Doctor for you. says I have so to. So, Matt, good. what's on your bench? Yes, Matt. It says Matt here, so it must be your turn. Oh, that must be the other. Actually, I'm trying to get myself used to dead airspace. I have to quit trying to fill it because that's how I got into these size 50 pants. Just kidding. <laughs> not 50s. Anyway, so, uh, so the big thing for me right now is as of today, as we're recording this, the first of a three-part series hope it's three parts. If not, hopefully they'll let me do two more parts uh, of a popular woodworking, the daily blog. I don't know if you guys see this. This is kind of like the the one that Dan typically does. And it's got some really neat information over there, just kind of uh, tidbits here and there. Well, they, they asked if I would if I would come in and uh, do some blog series. And the very first one is up right now. And it's all about small shop layout because apparently I have a small shop. And so the topic fit perfectly fine for it. Uh, I did a, a little post at the actual blog itself, and then I recorded a video just for it where I kind of go through the way I have my shop laid out and talk a little bit about it. And, of course, there's always the comments already coming in like, man, you really talk a lot. And I'm thinking it's because I have a lot of information to tell you. So just deal with it. Maybe sit back, get some popcorn, get a drink, and you probably might actually learn something. Or maybe in your comments I might learn from you. But either way, uh, like I said, I have two more of these coming out. And, again, this is all small shop kind of conversation. So hopefully uh, get some good information back from people and, and perhaps they'll actually get something for me. And I'm pretty excited about it. That's, that's awesome. And I think it's really important to talk about these small shops because a lot of people, that's what they're dealing with. And uh, I had someone on Facebook the other day, just make a comment briefly. Like I don't, I want to do woodworking, but I don't have any space. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, some guy just sent me a video of a, just a little thing, like um, uh, just something he filmed on his uh, his phone on on YouTube, and it it he basically has a bedroom and he converts it, and it's just this thing you see it sped up really fast. He converts it to a workshop and just covers a few things with tarps. He sets up a fan in the window so there's no uh, dust staying in the room, and it's like you know what. In some cases, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. You really, That's right. You really want to do this. There are things you can do. So I think the problem is a lot of people just aren't inspired or they may see, you know, shops like mine or even shops like you guys have that, yeah. uh, you know, they actually have the opposite effect. They don't inspire. They just make them feel like, well, I'll never be able to do this stuff. Um, yeah, so it's, impor- it's important to see these shops of all different sizes and how people make them work just to inspire people to just get started, figure it out, do something to get started. Yeah, I've got a couple of hand tool school members that a couple of them live in New York City in apartments and yeah. like their balcony is their their shop. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're talking like a postage stamp 30 stories up. Um, so don't drop that scrap, by the way. That's, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I know another guy that his shop is like he's got a storage closet like off of his carport, like mm-hmm. in the basement of his apartment building. You know, and that's where he does his work. And, you know, I'm always telling people, oh, you got to send me these pictures and it never happens because I guess people, I don't know, (laughs) you can't can't get a camera in there (laughs) because once they're standing there, there's no room or something like that. But you're right. Nobody sees any of this stuff. But I got to say, Matt, I I watched that video and I don't know whether it was just the angles that you chose, but that's really the first time that I've gotten a a kind of an accurate picture of what your shop (laughs) Like what your shop is. Yeah. You do a lot of kind of closer angle shots like you should. And a couple of those wider angle shots um, 
how big is your shop? Well, that's, it's funny you say that because I did have one comment that already kind of came in and it was like, your power tool area is the size of my entire shop. And it's <laughs> funny because I was thinking afterwards, I'm like, you know, my first shop was the size of my power tool area. So the total length of the shop, for, uh, the length is just over 22, 23 feet. And it's approximately, uh, what is that, like, like 12 feet wide. Oh, so okay. it it kind of has like almost like that that shotgun kind of effect where it's nice and long but not necessarily nearly as wide. But the main thing that, of course, is the fact that my furnace, and my water heater, actually take up a, a big chunk of floor space because I have my my table saw right near those, mm-hmm. and it, nothing's funnier than trying to get stuff through there when I have my table saw out a little bit too much and then I got to turn sideways to <laughs> finagle my way through it. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I guess it's about I guess it's about the same size as mine. I think I think I might have a couple of square feet on you, like one or two. But I don't know, maybe did you have a wide angle lens or something on that camera? Or just something about it made it look really <laughs> small. I guess it wouldn't be a wide angle lens, but yeah, I no, it just I, I think it was just the way I had it planned because I wanted to have the lens is the camera is far up against the first wall when you walk in, so you really did get that depth you know, of how far back everything is. So I I was trying to figure it out. I think it it usually turns out to be about the size of maybe the average, like, single stall garage. I think I I once tried to figure it out maybe. That's what I have is a single stall garage. So, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, but it's definitely, I'm I'm really curious to hear more. I would love to hear from some more people that have even smaller shops because I've really even thought about trying to, like, narrow things down to, like, a particular just, you know, let, let's just work in this one little area, but you know what? I, I have the space. I'm taking advantage of it. I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> I, I hope every comment that comes in says you talk too much. And uh, also, and then they go into their actual point. <laughs> That's fine. Cause the one thing is if you're telling me I talk too much, you're still not telling me that I suck at woodworking. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, there's a flip side to that. <laughs> I was, you know, the thing I always say is, you know who I used to think talked too much, my college professors. It, those yeah. guys bored me to death and you know, gals. And if I had just listened, I probably would have learned more. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's move into uh, what's new. Got one. Let's see. Got a couple of things that we could share. This is all community stuff that you guys sent us for the most part. Uh, got an instructable and a video here sent in by Chris. He said, just found this link for a super simple and cheap work holding setup. Thought it might be worth passing on. And it's pretty cool. It's a neat little hold down. So picture a wooden block in your leg vice or some type of vice being held down. And there's a couple of V notches in it that allow it to, to sort of awkwardly shape things can kind of nest in these V notches. And then there is a doubled up rope put through a hole that goes up vertically. So this guy's carving a spoon. So think about putting the spoon onto the V notch, the rope goes around the handle, and then you just kind of, I don't know whether I didn't watch the whole thing and whether the rope is attached to his foot or something so he could put downward pressure, but the rope is doing all the holding and he's able to carve it and it's not moving. I mean, it's rock solid. So it's kind of a cool application for just about any time you have that awkwardly shaped piece, you need to have both hands on the work. It seems like a great solution that, um, you know, that there really isn't a clamp out there that would do that job. Isn't this the same mechanism they used for beheading people in the Middle Ages? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there was like that V or, look or it up. U-shaped notch that and they pulled the rope and it pulled the back of their neck into view and... I think I saw that in one of the Robin Hood movies. Hmm, I don't know, so but it I, must be accurate. I, I yes, it was. So. It was the Kevin Costner one, and they're going to oh, do it with his hand. It really must be accurate. <laughs> Yikes! That's we uh, don't. It, 
the one thing with this, when, when I saw this, my whole thing is I am extremely uncoordinated. And so I know for a fact that I might be using my foot to hold the thing down. But the second I go to make the cut, my foot would go in the same motion as my hand. <laughs> and so it would just fly right off the bench anyway. So it would do me no good whatsoever. Well, I think uh, Shannon would have the other problem with his massive muscled treadle lathe, lathe leg. <laughs> He would like just snap stomp through it and snap the spoon in half. <laughs> just kind of make sure I use the, the correct leg. With his giant calf. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> one single giant calf, like a Popeye version of a calf. Oh, just, that's just only on one side. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's move on to this next one. This came in from Stan, and Stan says, quote, not exactly a box joint, scary with all the open belts and gears. It's a nice product, and it kind of looks like the dog may have gotten too close to one of them. I love the wiring for the brander. So in other words, what Stan is talking about is in this video that we'll have a link for, uh, this is a box making company and it's really neat because everything is steam powered, all the, all the machinery that they're using. And it's, it's just a really neat look. Although it's funny because watching them, I think half the video is them just getting the fire stoked yeah, to get the steam built just to up. Just get it going. <laughs> and there were a few moments where uh, they're getting the belts uh, ready to roll. And I was just waiting for somebody to get sucked into one of them. So I can totally see where maybe the dog might have gotten a little close because he did have a little bit of a stubby tail. But it, overall, it's a really neat look at a company that is mass producing these neat little wooden boxes for all sorts of stuff. Like, in fact, it looked like audio tapes because yeah. I think one of them was like uh, the J.R.R. Tolkien series yep. Yep. or something. Yeah, it's well, you never get those things where exactly it's a, it's a great example, like a tape set or something that comes in this little commemorative box. And it's just a cheap wooden box. And you just wonder, is that how is that made just in this you know giant Chinese factory? Or I would love to think that all those little boxes come <laughs> from this little historical, uh, you know, historically significant steam powered shop. I mean, that it's so cool. Although I did notice that their pneumatic nailers are not steam driven. Well, <laughs> second, saw it literally looks like they have like uh, a couple of pneumatic nailers just like almost like duct taped in place. And then that's how they're like <laughs> attaching everything. Well, they've got I mean, the second half of the process is definitely a little more modern with the digital readout for the brander, you know, to tell you it's at 800 degrees. And then uh, huh. the rest of the process is a little more automated. But at least the beginning, the milling part of the process is totally steam driven and very, very cool. Good stuff to yes. look at. Definitely. I'm just thinking that would be a really cruel joke to play on somebody to talk your pneumatic nailer up to the steam. That would hurt, <laughs> wouldn't you think? Like the steam would basically eject every time you pull the trigger. And, oh! you know, they have those little where you reposition the, the output port on those so you don't get like blown in the face. But, right. you know, just point I always your forget head. and it's like poof and it like blows your hat off your head. Well, now imagine that it's superheated steam. That's, That's just great. Cool. But maybe That's they can somehow hook it up with you come to get the boxes made and you can stay for the steam bath. It's all corded in one direction. I'm noticing a bit of a theme with Shannon today and of violence coming across. <laughs> what is other violence Valentine's stories? Valentine's Day is right around the corner as we're recording this, Shannon. Jeez. Are you feeling something like pent up anger towards the holiday? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see if you can find something like dangerous or evil about this next one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can. Well, but. this came from Damon, which has kind of an evil kind of an evil name almost damien oh, that's damien yeah. yeah anyway damien said he came across a neat piece uh i almost said it a, a neat piece about a little guy a neat little piece <laughs> about a guy named jared rustin um he makes uh desks and coffee tables out of basically california he's he's a slab table maker and he shapes the slab into the state of california uh because he said he likes kind of the wraparound shape on a desk. So imagine sitting on that inside curve of California where um, 
whatchamacallit, what's that state? Nevada? <laughs> what's that other state? <laughs> You're asking the, the wrong guy. Geography from... was not my, my forte. Uh, I'm like, picture, Nevada or the, Arizona, the one, one or the other. Yeah, well, you know, it depends on where you are. But anyway, he, um, he essentially is a slab table maker, and he's just got some beautiful pieces of Clara walnut. Um, I think there's a tiger or something, uh, maple in there. And uh, I don't know. It's just kind of a cool site. He's, like, showing off, like, how he checks out the different slabs. But what I find interesting is the the post that this article is written is written by a non-woodworker oh. and the stuff that the non-woodworker is like really excited about. Like there's a quote in there about how he buys Clara Walnut and he gets it from Sawyers who save it from uh, lumber or uh, landfills and things like that. And the author of the post goes, Sawyer, what a cool word. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an interesting perspective of somebody that obviously knows nothing about woodworking and their perception of a guy that really makes beautiful stuff. Yeah. So. Just a general interest type article. Very right. cool. It's good. You know, the funny thing is you turn it like, turn it around, flip it around. It almost looks like New Jersey. I never realized that. Oh, wow. But nobody, right. nobody's buying New Jersey tables. It's <laughs> Somehow I don't think that's What's showing up in California's <laughs> press releases. What's up with that? We're like New Jersey backwards. <laughs> That'd be kind of interesting, though, like if it has drawers and you could be like, what drawer is it in? You're like, it's down near San Diego. Oh, that is cool. What a cool idea. I like yeah, that. You could, you could stick like pencils or maybe a, actually San, or San Francisco Bay. That would be a cup holder. Mm, there you go. Uh-huh. You, guys, you guys are full of great ideas. And what part of it can I kill myself with, Shannon? <laughs> well, if you live in California, <laughs> is that the mind. is that the lower part near Tijuana, or okay. you might want to stay from the L.A. area? Oh, wait, did we just say that? We have a lot of listeners in L.A. We love L.A. Down down south near Tijuana, that's where the wormholes are in the wood. But there you go. <laughs> All right, uh, we got one more here from Josh. He says, "Thought this was pretty cool and worth sharing." Uh, what is this one? Oh, this is the <laughs> replica of. Uh, let's see. It's a fast food joint, right? So so the entire thing is a full size replica made out of wood of a fast food restaurant. So picture, you know, McDonald's good. It looks actually, it looks exactly like McDonald's. Um, why comes to mind, but, (laughs) but it is super cool, like super well done. And once you start to see the close-ups and you see all the wood grain in it, because from far away, it just looks like it's, uh, uh, like an unpainted set. That, that, you know, is made out of uh, foam or something, but you look up close and you start to see the wood and the amount of detail that's in this is insane, but it still makes you walk away going, why, why? I, I believe the proper answer is because. Because you can. Yes. Because he, he just had some scrap birch and thought, yeah, why what not? What the heck? I'm not doing anything with the next five years. Why not? Actually, well, I think he just took an eight-day-long course at the William A. class. <laughs> and he wanted to get back there and finish it before he forgot how to complete uh, it. That makes so perfect I sense. I think the fryer baskets took eight days by themselves. I know. That's what I'm saying. There's so much detail in this thing. But anyway, very cool. You want to check it out. Of course, we'll have the links for that and all the other uh, things that everybody sent us in the What's New section. You can check that out in the show notes. And let's jump into our kickback. Uh, normally it's all email, but we've got a couple of voicemails to get us kicked off here. But um, bum. <laughs> oh my lord! Boo. Hey fellas, it's Brian from uh, from Boston. I uh, love the show. Just, uh, I was just listening to the the newest discussion about tool quality, and um, just want to leave a little message for kickback. Uh, I think one of the things you guys were talking about was Festool and how it's not really meant for the hobbyist and, you know, it's, it's more for professionals that, you know, are counting on saving time to make more money. I think Mark made the point that he sees that as almost the other way around. 
and I would totally agree with that. Um, you know, as a hobbyist, I don't get nearly as much time in the shop as I might want. Um, you know, I've got a family and I've got a full-time job. So anything that's going to save me time and allow me to, you know, work on, turn out more projects or, you know, finish things up that the wife wants me to do or, or whatever, um, or anything that's going to streamline tasks that I don't find fun, like milling, you know, I don't mind spending a few extra bucks on a, on a nice, you know, heavy duty top of the line joiner because I hate milling boards flat, straight and square. Um, so that's where I, I don't mind spending a lot of money to save time, even though, you know, time isn't money for me, but time is fun for me. So, you know, the more time that I can spend on the tasks that I enjoy, you know, the better. So anyway, uh, keep it up guys. Love the show. And, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Excellent. Thanks for that, Brian. Appreciate it. Uh, got another one here from Jared. Hello, Wood Talk. This is Jared from up in British Columbia. And I just wanted to comment on that wonderful video of the log barge dumping. You get that all the time up here, but the real fun part is before they had that technology worked out, they used to have to use they used to have to use dynamite to loosen up those loads to get them to come off the barge. Can you imagine me and the guy having to do that? I don't know. <laughs> Lots of fun. Anyways, love the show. Keep up the good work. Can you imagine Thanks. that? Fire in the hole, you know? <laughs> that sounds like more fun. I want to see a video of that. Yeah, that does sound like a lot more fun. I bet you someone yeah. probably would die, Shannon. <laughs> Maybe. Violent, Maybe it violently. Coyote. It would be bloody and gory and everything. I'm um, still convinced <laughs> that the person that was stuck with that job was the either the intern or somebody's son-in-law. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All yeah, right. Don't worry about it. It's a 30-second fuse. It'll be fine. All right. Uh, got one here from Carlo. He says, as a new woodworker, I bought a lot of unnecessary cheap tools that I now regret. I wish I had used the internet before making purchases. The information <laughs> I've learned from YouTube videos, I don't know, sometimes it goes the opposite. I was um, going to say. It <laughs> might, might be dangerous. That. Uh, the information I learned from YouTube videos, your podcast, and listening to Wood Talk, I could have saved a lot of time and money. I do believe the more woodworking skill you have, the easier it is to use cheaper tools. If you've if you never used a plane before, you can't tell that a Graz plane. Is that how you pronounce that? Graz? Sure. Why not? Graz? Graz? I don't know. Um, I'll go with uh, yes. G-R-O-Z. Graz plane is a piece of... You just think you uh, don't know how to use it. I almost gave up until I went on... An, went on the internet, learned about tools and how they should work. And now I'm dealing with my crappy tools a little bit better and slowly, but surely each new tool is of better quality because taking time to get a cheap tool working. Okay. Takes away from the time that I could spend woodworking, live and learn. Um, so it sounds like he's a, of a similar mind as, as Brian in terms of how he spends his time in the shop. Now on the flip side, you know, this, this, this really was an interesting conversation that happened as a result of last week's show where we talked about tool quality. So if you go to the Wood Whisperer website or go to woodtalkshow.com and look for episode 168, you will find quite a few comments uh, in a wide range of opinions about tool quality and what's good, what's not, and whether or not we're snobs which was, <laughs> that was a fun part. <laughs> that was snooty. snooty. Snooty, snooty. That's snooty. it. Snooty. There's a difference. Yes. And, uh, and I do think Shannon is snooty. So, um, absolutely. You know, so it is what it is. I mean, seriously, we did take a poll and between the three of us, uh, yes, two thirds <laughs> thought he was right. Uh, so that's that uh, good, good discussions and good feedback on that. So, uh, we, we hope these topics like that single topic shows keep getting the interest they, they have been so far. This is a lot of fun for us. Uh, Shannon, you want to grab the next one? From now on, I'm going to be speaking like Thurston Howell. <laughs> yeah, you need to podcast. You need to podcast with your pinky out. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked about um, Emerald Ash Borer and Powder Post Beetles a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And we were contacted by a couple of guys from the uh, guys that run a website called risingfromashes.org. And um, I don't think we made a very clear, or rather I should say, I'll take credit for this. Snooty. I didn't make a clear <laughs> distinction between the Emerald Ash Borer and the Powder Post Beetle. Because uh, frankly, from a lumberyard perspective, they're all bugs and we want to get rid of them. So um, the I learned a lot specifically about the Emerald Ash Borer to the point where I believe it was Lewis who had the question. He obviously has a powder post beetle problem, not an Emerald Ash Borer or some other type of bug, not the Emerald Ash Borer. It turns out the Emerald Ash Borer, despite its name, is not a boring insect. Um, and it definitely does not invade the heartwood. So... This is this is interesting, and the reason I bring this up, and check out risingfromashes.org. A lot of the cities that are, are blighted with the, the emerald ash borer, they're just cutting down the ash trees and essentially burning them, chipping them up and burning them, throwing them into landfills. Hmm. And the, this group is trying to raise awareness that the trees are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. If you strip the, the sapwood and specifically the bark, they can't really get past the cambium layer. If you strip that off and then you heat treat them, the rest of the wood is perfectly fine. Hmm. And this group is actually uh, has a, a show. They've built furniture out of nothing but ash that's been saved from essentially being burned by cities because they're wholesale cutting down these trees left and right to prevent the blight from spreading, and it's all just lumber that's going to waste. So they are exclusively building furniture from that salvaged wood. I just thought it was a really cool um, – a really cool organization and they are trying their damnedest to spread the word to say, please don't just trash these trees yeah. uh, because the, the apparently the Emerald Ash Borer doesn't even have like the physical attributes to be able to bore into anything. So whoever named it a borer they're they're They should be to blame. Hmm. They should be killed. Good information. Very cool. So this organization basically is encouraging others to actually do research versus just going blind, crazy, and uh, destruction. What? That doesn't sound what? like us. I know. No. It's... <laughs> actually, hey, this next one, Shannon, why don't you go ahead and keep talking and do Michael's because okay. yours and then the one I'm going to do, I, the, the one I have, uh, was very similar to what you're about to read. But then there's just a little blurp that I think would be a great addition to what the one that you have right now from Michael. So why don't you go ahead and take that and then I'll follow it up. But I, I didn't prepare. Oh, I'm sorry. Do it anyways. Okay. Well, anyway, Michael says in episode 167, you talked about using diamond stones exclusively. I've been using this method for two years now, and I love it. I used to use water stones, but hated the hassle of having to lug a pail of water out to the shop. I'd be carrying around all this water, soak the stones, then have the mess, then have the mess to deal with after I was done sharpening. I found that I did not sharpen enough because the process was so long and messy. Now I keep a coarse, fine, and extra fine diamond plate as well as a leather strop on a small table next to my bench. I use window cleaner to lube the plate, and I can sharpen an iron in about two minutes. Hmm. Well, that's fantastic, Michael. Window cleaner. Isn't that what they uh, they said in uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding that like fixed all the problems? Just yeah, so it also does skin cleaner. blemishes too. Yeah, <laughs> window cleaner. Right, absolutely. Well, you know, to add on to what Michael just said, uh, Kenji had wrote in an, an almost a mirror image of what Michael said. There was a little bit of difference, but not much. They pretty much said the same exact thing. 
But Kenji also followed it up with, I know one conversation we had had from the episode that they're referring to, I think I had mentioned that one of the things I hate about diamond plates is if you don't clean them up, then you get that rust all over them and then you got to somehow clean that up. Kenji said that he found out that the DMT company recommends using any powdered-based cleaner or cleanser to clean the stone. In fact, uh, Kenji went on to say he uses Barkeep's friend, and it cleaned off that rust in no time using a nylon scrubbing brush. And it only took about a minute or two of scrubbing. Hmm. Sounds so, good now. Now, here's, this is interesting. As a contrasting point of view, we've got an email here from Adam. He says, I had bad experiences with Scary Sharp. That's the one with the sandpaper, if you're not familiar. Scary. And then uh, tell us a little more about what's scary about it, Shannon. Is there blood uh, and destruction? I just, because I'm, you can nick your knuckle on it. That's it? it? I want something more vivid than that. All right, <laughs> I just uh, did that on some maple this weekend. <laughs> so he tried the Scary Sharp and then moved on to Empower DMT PSS sharpening system from Woodpeckers. Uh, basically, it's one of those things where it holds the chisel in place and then you move the diamond stones back and forth over top of it. Uh, he says, like the others, I also experienced that the stones feel dulled after one or two uses. And though I bought every grit that they offered from 120 to 8,000, I never could sharpen my blades to a great finish. When I bought my first Lee Nielsen plane from Craftsman Studio, I picked the brain of the owner about sharpening, which he happened to be pretty smart on. He explained some of the manufacturing process behind the diamond stones and that it's just too hard to get the diamond particles to a consistent size at the micron level, which makes it difficult to get a consistently high-quality finish quickly from them. He demonstrated that the Lee Nielsen... Uh, blah, 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 that basically using water stones like Lee Nielsen does, uh, that it takes less than a minute to get a mirror finish on both sides of the plane iron. I was blown away at how fast and easy it was. Time is way more valuable than money to me, so I dropped the cash and bought a set of Shapton stones. I was able to get a mirror finish in a few minutes after my first attempt. Uh, and he says it was the best level of sharpness he's ever seen. Now, he still uses the Empower DMT PSS for regrinding primary bevels because it's easy to grind at 25 and 30 degrees. Uh, sharpening was a mystery mystery until now. Uh, don't fear it anymore. Nothing comes close to water stones, in my opinion, for speed and sharpness. I recommend people invest the money in a set of water stones, a flattening plate, and a honing guide, and their sharpening issues will be solved. Very so. nice. Whatever. Honing guides. Useless. <laughs> yes, they you know, are. I wish somebody could <laughs> I can think of no faster way to break a finger and die than with a honing guide. I know, right? You trip, you trip on it. It goes right into your neck. I mean, it's so dangerous. Oh, it really oh, is. Having nightmares. You know, it's not it's not in the kickback, but since somehow I've been labeled as the Grim Reaper in this episode, we really should mention <laughs> something that was sent to us today. Um, oh yeah. And now I don't remember who it was, but this was a post on the Lost Art Press a while ago called "Death by Rubo." Yep. Oh yes. And uh, we'll put a I'll I'll drop it in the show notes here. But if you just Google "Death by Rubo," you should be able to find it. It's a very it's not graphic, but use your imagination. It's a picture of a dude trying to decapitate himself by essentially sharpening a spade bit, attaching to the bottom of his Rubo workbench, weighing it down, and then like lifting it up in the air on a block. And he laid under it and knocked the block out of the way. And let's just say he was successful. And, so, and it is just to clarify, it's a drawing. It's not like yeah. a photograph. Yes, it is a drawing. <laughs> and it's before he knocked the block out of the way. Yes, not so. after. But it is disturbing as heck. You know, so, if it was a if it was a real sketch while the person was sitting there, you would hope that they would have tried to talk him out of it. it might intervene a little bit. Yes, but um, yeah, that sensational was a real press, jerk, man. Yeah, what an ass. He just sat there and let him do it. <laughs> Hold on, I'm almost done with this chip carving. Uh, all right, we're ready. Nice. Uh, all right, let's move into our voicemail. We got two of them for you. Uh, Chris with a K has a question about uh, jointer and a comment. A little bit long. I wanted to edit it, but I didn't have time, so here it is. 
Hi guys, Chris with a K calling from New Jersey, calling with a question and also with a big thank you. Uh, first, the question uh, deals with technique on the power jointer. Uh, sorry, Shannon, nothing to see here, move along. Uh, but for Matt and Mark, I uh, wanted to know when you're dealing with a twisted board, uh, do you actually adjust the weight of uh, the pressure that you're putting down on the outfeed table to try to clip off the, the corners that need to be adjusted down first? I found recently as I was working with the twisted board, I eventually got to the point where I had a smooth cut, but actually the twist was still there a little bit. I think if I kept going, eventually I would work it, work it down. But um, I'm wondering if there's a, a, a way in which you adjust your technique and perhaps put extra pressure on the corners that need to be taken off first. Uh, so curious to know what your thoughts are there. And a big thank you is related to a question that I had posed maybe over a month ago. Uh, I was looking to create matching curves and I was asking for recommendations on a material that I could use in a tech. Okay, there's about a minute to go on that one. I can uh, sum it up because I remember it now since I listened to it. Remember we were talking about the styrene material uh, that folks use, architects use, um, to kind of get those curves in place. He said that he did go to a craft store or hobby store and picked up some of the styrene, and he said it worked perfectly. He was able to get the curve he needed, and the material was rigid enough to handle the bearing of a flush trim or a pattern bit, so it worked out really well for him. Nice. Good. Yeah, good, good, good stuff. to know. Um, so, Matt, do you want to take this one first, and if I have anything different that I do uh, with a twisted board on the lathe, I could uh, throw that in after? On the lathe? Or, you know what I mean. <laughs> The, the like, uh, I have a twist on the, lathe. the little tiny lathe with blades on it that sits in between two metal tables. That lathe. Oh, there you go. Come on. Okay. I'm like, I, I, I normally I, I just I just ended up telling somebody I'm like sometimes I don't really pay attention when we're doing the show and I have to listen to it afterwards to find out what I even said. Yeah, you were you know, on the ball there, man. Some. That was that. You were on the ball on that one though. But uh. so okay, so dealing with twist on a jointer. Yeah. Really, for myself, and maybe I'm doing this wrong. I don't know, uh, but. What I typically do is once I figure out how I'm going to hold the board in place on the infeed table so that it's nice and, and, and solid and, and it's not going to move on me, as I start to move it over the blade, I never really adjust my pressure. I never move my downward pressure whatsoever. So if anything, once it gets to the outfeed table, I'm still maintaining the pressure pretty much in the same exact locations. And I found uh, for myself – that this seems to take care of the 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 whole issue. I mean, I might have to make a few more passes. The one problem with working with bowed and cupped and twisted boards is it often seems like you have to make multiple, multiple passes and potentially sacrifice more of the wood if you really want to get it dead flat, mm-hmm. um, if you need it that way. I mean, otherwise, if you're lucky, maybe you can cut it into smaller pieces that are still manageable and... Uh, go from there, but that's that. That's my technique. Is I just try to keep it frozen in that one position yeah. and not rock it back and forth. Because that's kind of how I took his question. It's like, do you start at one end and then maybe readjust once you get over the cutter head to try and nip that other one in the hopes that it's going to speed it up? I, yeah. Maybe I misunderstood that. No, I think that's what he meant. Um, there's a couple ways you can do it, and I think the way you're describing Matt to me is what I would consider the safest way because you know that. The board isn't moving at all. It's nice right. and, and straight. So you, like you said, you, you stabilize it on the infeed and then push it through. So with a twist, you pretty much have to pick, right? You could 
push it one way and push down, or you could flip it the other way and push down. So right. you have to choose which one is going to be the least of the two evils. Um, now, for me personally, um, I don't I don't really do this, but you could, I imagine, and if it's really, really a nasty twist, you can kind of just take a pass on each side selectively. So um, kind of hit the first corner, and then once you're floating, once the board is actually kind of floating above the cutter head, then you stop the, the, stop the lathe, <laughs> stop the jointer. <laughs> stop that spinny thing. Turn thingy. off the lathe before you turn on the jointer. <laughs> it's a good Especially idea. Especially if it's across the room. Absolutely. Wait, I see the problem. You're using two tools at once, and you might want to concentrate on one for a better result. Right, right. Uh, but then you take the board off, flip it around, and take a nip on the other side. So I think what he's trying to say is, you know, maybe simulate doing that in one pass by pushing pressure and flipping it from one side to the other. That all sounds a little hairy to me, and I know he... <laughs> He, he excluded Shannon from this, but ultimately I think that's where the, to me, the best answer lies is in a hand plane. If you've got even the most like remotely tuned up hand plane, you can use that to nip those corners off and, and really do a lot of that work ahead of time. Um, and, and surprisingly, I mean, if you had a power uh, hand planer, you could use that too. But the idea is get the bulk of it out of the way so that when you do put that thing onto the infeed table, it isn't as much of a big choice which which like way you're going to push it toward or away to get the twist out. Because if you do what you're doing, Matt, like you said, you're going to wind up consuming a, a grand total a lot more of the wood. If right. you can in like if you could pull off equal amounts from the offending corners, you can actually save more of the wood. So so for me, I think the best thing is to try to get that stuff done at the workbench first. It doesn't take but a few minutes uh, to, to nip those corners down and then head to the jointer and you'll find that it sits much more stable and you don't really have to make as much of a decision about uh, which, which corner to focus on. Right. Of course, or, this begs the question, if you take the hand plane out and do that, why not just run that side down through the planer and just get the, the jointer all together? I was just going to say that was exactly, that mm-hmm. was where I was going to head with it. Dang it, Sorry, Shannon. Matt. Sorry, Matt. Oh. I don't like being excluded. <laughs> but I think if it goes far enough, you know, sometimes if you just nip the corners, it does make it more stable, but it's not quite stable enough that you want to count on that as a reference surface for the planer. Um, so I, I tend to stop a lot earlier. I guess if someone worked it a little bit more where it was mostly flat, and sitting perfectly stable, then yeah, why not use the planer? Okay, got another one here from... Mostly flat. Mostly flat. Partly straight. Right. I uh, got another one here from Chet. Chet. Hi, guys. This is Chet from Nashville. Uh, next month, I'm going to be building a toy box for my grandson, Enzo, and it's going to be modeled after Schwarz's toolboxes. This is going to be the first project that I paint, um, and I just had some questions about finish on paint. You know, normally when I'm staining a project, I'm going to use a top coat of a clear something or other with a given luster, um, and I'm looking for a nice satiny finish. But again, it's it's paint. Do you use the same kinds of uh, materials to do that, or do you use specifically paints that are satin finishes? I just wanted to get some of your input. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Well, first of all, Enzo is a very cool name. And I was going to say the same thing. That's an awesome name. Yeah, sounds he's like he's a cute uh, looking kid too. Sounds like he might hang out with Mateo. <laughs> yeah, he might make good friends. And he could possibly grow up to be like a dictator or something. That's true. Just a great name for some sort of <laughs> despot. Yes. Anyway, uh, so paint. Or a barbarian Enzo the barbarian. Oh, I like the way that sounds. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Okay. Carry paint. On. Do Woodworking. You, either of you guys use paint. Do you ever paint your projects? 
To, yes. Uh, yes. Okay. In fact, I, I have two right now that are waiting to be painted. So generally speaking, when you're painting a project, do you find the need to top coat the paint or do you find that paint itself as a adequate, adequate protective finish for whatever it is you're, you're covering? Either one of you. Mm, yeah. These days I like to top coat it. I didn't used to. Um, but once I did it, it was like, oh, this is this was the missing link, yeah. um, the missing element from it. Now, I guess it does depend upon the paint you use. Like if you if you use like a really good high quality exterior paint, like if you're doing outdoor furniture or whatever, a lot of times that's all that's needed. But even then, I'll usually go back over it with like a polycrylic or you know thin dot polyurethane, and it it adds a protective layer over top of it to prevent it from possibly chipping or or whatever it is. But interior stuff, um, absolutely. That's where I get my satin finish is mm-hmm. from that uh, top-coated whatever it is, uh, whatever it is I choose to use. Cool. Okay. Uh, for me, that generally speaking, if I'm going to use paint, I actually usually just let the paint be paint. Uh, I don't worry about dumb. top coating it too much. That's dumb. I know it is. But um, <laughs> the other alternative, which is more fun for me, if you can get the colors right, is to use pigments in lacquer. So if I've got like a good quality lacquer that I know and trust as a top coat, well, I can actually mix pigment in it to get a cool color, layer on the colors with lacquer, and then use a protective coat of that very same lacquer, just clear without the pigment in it. And it gives you a very paint-like surface probably giving you the results very similar to what, what you're talking about, Shannon, that gives it a certain luster and depth that you don't normally get with just a paint layer. Right. Yeah, it's cool stuff. I mean, lately what I've been painting, I've been using milk paint too, which if you don't top coat on that, I mean, that's like really chalky and dull and dirty and nasty unless you put a top coat over it. Right. Unless, of course, you're using general finishes milk paint, which is actually just acrylic paint, not <laughs> <Right>. milk paint. <laughs> it's, just, um, it's just called milk paint. <laughs> All right, let's move into our email. We're uh, running pretty short on time here, so let's plow through these. First one is from Joe. He says, when I first started working, I started out in a community shop. I rented space on a military base, was stationed as a MWR woodshop. Uh, There was a sanding table that everyone was required to use. It was essentially a table with a pegboard top and an open honeycomb center that allowed it to be hooked up to a vacuum system. This helped keep the dust down and uh, when people were sanding, and I haven't seen anything like it since. My question is, have you guys ever used something similar and are they worthwhile maybe to double as an assembly table? Uh, So for those who don't know what he's talking about, generally speaking, that's called a downdraft table. And the idea is any sanding that you do, you do it on that table and it will suck all the material down uh, into a vac, which is kind of a cool idea. So I think a well-constructed system that has adequate air flow is really cool. And I have used one in the past, not much, but uh, I've used it a couple of times and I like it. But ultimately, you've got to have the vacuum running the whole time for it to work. Uh, and if you are too far away, it doesn't necessarily, you know, obviously the distance away from that surface you are, uh, sort of lessens the effectiveness of it. So it's really important that it be built well and that the vacuum be strong enough to, to get the job done. Uh, but if it, if you do all that, it actually is kind of a cool idea. But for me personally, I find it much more useful to simply have a sander connected to a shop vac uh, and collect the dust that way because a lot of times I don't want to just sand on a flat surface. Sometimes I'm sanding something that's already assembled and I can't lay it on this downdraft table. So for me, having effective dust collection at the source 
is probably the the better solution for me personally. Um, but I will have a couple of links here that I collected. If you are interested in doing the whole downdraft table thing, I've got a Bill Pence article on the topic. Probably will scare the crap out of you, but read it anyway. <laughs> um, I have an instructables video from a uh, workshop and uh, says build a downdraft table. And also there is a hardware kit. Now I'm not exactly sure what comes in this, but it's sold at Rockler. It's expensive. It's 371, but it's basically got filters and all kinds of stuff that come with it. So you probably just have to supply the wood and build the frame and everything, but a downdraft table hardware kit. It actually gets uh, two very good reviews. So at the very least, look at it and kind of, you know, borrow the ideas and maybe get your own parts to do I it. actually, I actually built one of these years yeah. ago mm-hmm. in my, the first iteration of my shop. It was just a little, uh, it was like a two by four piece of, of pegboard yeah. from Home Depot was my top. And I, I actually bought one of those non-slip paint things from mm-hmm. Rockler. So it was this very kind of tacky surface and it worked great as long as I was sanding something flat on the top. So uh, like if you were doing pre-finishing or something like that, I think it would work. But what you said earlier, the minute something was assembled and got more than like three inches off the surface, it was useless. Yeah. Um, now, granted, I just had a you know shop vac hooked up to it. I did use a like a full blown like professional downdraft table at Chuck Bender's old shop, and that was a thing of beauty. But you know, <laughs> it was loud as hell. <laughs> you turn the thing on and the pneumatic sander, and it was. You know, you can't hear yourself think even through the hair, earring prote- earring protection. Yeah, yeah. well, and, you don't and, want to hurt your earrings. Well, and here, yes, <laughs> and here's a, another suggestion that you might consider. Uh, definitely go with the shop vac thing. But um, one thing that I do, if I'm doing a lot of hand sanding, you know, sometimes you're not using the powered sander. You got to get the stuff sanded by hand. Well, there's not a whole lot you can do to collect that dust. But there is a cool solution, and you can certainly cobble this together together yourself. Get a box fan and get a twenty by twenty air filter. And either tape it to the fan and then put it on high right next to your workbench so that any of that stuff that goes airborne as you're sanding by hand gets sucked up into this filter. Um, There's a company out there called Filter a Fan. It's a real small company. They make a little plastic thing that goes on the outside of pretty much any standard box fan. And then you can just slide your filter right in and out. And it's nice and lightweight, super cheap, comparatively speaking. And just set that down right next to you when you're doing those sanding jobs that aren't uh, really, they won't really work for any other traditional uh, dust collection options that are there. Um, that might be something to look into too. Hey, one more thing, just uh, because I want to have something to say too. If you head over to my website, uh, badspacementworkshop.com, I don't know if anybody's aware of that. Uh, the guys at Steel City actually have a banner at the top and they made a drill press downdraft table they've been experimenting with. And this is totally shop made. Cool. Maybe you could make it out of pallet wood. I'm not sure, but it's something that you could play with. <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of something neat to work at they've got the whole entire structure instructions there because i know when i use my drill press a lot of times it's just me blowing on it trying to get stuff out of the way so i can see what i'm doing right cool (laughs) all right shannon you're up all right this is from bob he says i'm in the process of cleaning up my old hand planes to get them in usable shape a coworker does powder coating and he says he'll coat them for me at no cost it goes without saying i would protect the sides bottom and mounting pads from getting coated What concerns me is the 400-degree Fahrenheit baking process to cure it. I think this would add a durable, sharp-looking coating, but I also don't want a chance warping the sole. Well, um, we all know how much I know about casting iron and and stuff like that. So I pass this question to none other than Thomas Lee Nielsen. 
And Thomas got back to me, and they, obviously they powder coat their stuff and they forge their own soles and everything. They always powder coat everything before they go to the grinder, though. So, hmm. you know, it's one of those things where if it does warp at all, it doesn't really matter because they grind it flat after that point. Hmm. But he said, you know, looking at it and talking with his, um, his forge foreman or whatever they call that person, that the 400 degrees probably shouldn't cause a problem. Um, but he said what I would recommend, kind of like if you're trying out a new finish, do it in an area that can't be seen. So if he has like one of those planes, it's maybe more beat up than another. Try it there, but take measurements kind of before and after so that you know what's going on. Um, you know that if it is, uh, if it does warp at all on you, but there is every potential that you may have to kind of uh, flatten that sole again. But his opinion was that it shouldn't affect it that much with that lower temperature. Hmm. So Sweet. there we go. Powder coat away, my friend. Nice. Just don't do it in your uh, your wife's uh, oven. Wait, that's something so, else. Never mind. I have, I have a feeling if I had something like that, it'd be like having one of those automatic labelers where suddenly everything has a label. <laughs> right. You know, like every, parts of the shop would be powder coated for <laughs> powder no coated, reason whatsoever. I powder coated my iPhone. <laughs> come here, Alex. Come here. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to this next one. And this comes in from Alan who says, would Bofins, buffoons. I hope it's not buffoons. I think you meant no, buffoons. Oh, wait, so, anyways, uh, he says uh, a desk I'm building has four three-inch by three-inch by twelve-inch oak posts in each of the four corners of the carcass. The plan was to drill holes in the bottom of each post to insert black iron pipe for the desk legs. I meant to tackle the one and seven-eighth inch hole on the drill press before assembling the carcass, but alas. I forgot. Uh, isn't that true for every woodworker? Uh, still, I thought this would be easy enough. I chucked a new Forstner bit into my power drill and started boring. And after about 30 minutes, I'd, done, I'd gone through uh, both drill batteries. My wrist was sore, and the resulting hole wasn't even close to the three-inch depth I was hoping for. The bit chattered a lot against the ungrain, and the drill bucked and twisted uh, like an electric uh, banana or bram- Brahma. Brahma? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I don't know. I suddenly was thinking banana, like, oh, he banana the sole of his planes, too. That's cool. <laughs> um, something we have in common, Alan. Anyway, so, so Alan goes on to say, my fallback plan is to now extend the post three inches with small stacked blocks of oak with the grain oriented horizontally. I could disguise the edge and end grain of these little slabs by attaching a profile. Nonetheless, I don't want to do this until I'm sure there's no way to honor the original plan and drill a three inch, one and seven eighths inch hole in the post end grain. I've searched all over and everyone agrees that boring into end grain is hard. It's really hard. It's hard. Thank you, Internet. It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that That's the Internet hard. was able to enlighten you in that manner. The Internet so concurs. Yes. And I, I concur with the Internet. Wait, I'm on the Internet. So anyway, so to, to, to do this one and seven eighth inch hole, my suggestion to Alan was, was really simple. And that's basically make a series of relief cuts around the exterior perimeter uh, or actually inside the uh, the exterior uh, diameter of this hole. And they don't have to be like a whole bunch of them either. I, I think I might have actually suggested just to do a handful, maybe like three or four, just enough to kind of give that Forstner bit a little bit of clearance so there's not so much pressure on it and it's not going to heat up. It's almost kind of like relief cuts, basically. Uh, Alan said he did try this and it worked. He was able to get through with no problem at all. Uh, so... Problem Making solved. those relief cuts definitely helps to take the pressure off of that a one and seven eighths inch Forstner bit. That's huge. That is. Yeah. That's that's, that's something I definitely don't want to be chucking up into my hand drill to do. But apparently by taking these little relief cuts, 
it did help out. So good news is his uh, wrists are still intact, uh, no major damage, <laughs> and he said he was able to get through it in no time at all. You know, the thing is, too, uh, that I found is Forstner bits are definitely not all created equal. And no. There are some brands that will just like almost immediately dull out of the box, and then there are other ones that will uh, bore to a level that you're like, I didn't even know that was possible to do this. <laughs> so that's another thing. I mean, I'm glad he's got a solution to the problem, but when you're in the market, anybody who's in the market for a Forstner bit, look around a little bit because some of the uh, uh, higher quality ones, that's one area where the extra quality can really, really make a significant impact on what you can do with that bit. Right, definitely. At that size, you want something that, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think the, the tooth configuration on that net mm-hmm. needs to be able to, like, it's removing a lot of wood. So you want yeah. something that's not going to heat up super fast. At least, I don't know, maybe if you want to cook marshmallows on it, that might be interesting. Maybe you want to powder coat it later. That might be good. Oh, yeah, yeah powder coat it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, a boffin is a scientist or technical expert. Yeah, I just looked that up too. <laughs> just in case, just in case you wanted to like, I just want to make sure that he wasn't making on Jeopardy. I want to make sure he wasn't making fun of us or something. That, I'm going to walk around the lab tomorrow and just start calling people that you buff. The funny thing is, I've seen that in like a steampunk novel before, so oh, I really? figured it had to be be something cool. Nice, nice. All right, uh, next one here we got from Matthew. He says, having recently finished a set of dining chairs, I'm getting ready to start on a new dining room table. The table will be primarily cherry or cherry veneer. I was all set to build the table from solid cherry until I watched Mark's Humidor series and became acquainted with Veneer. Having seen the amazing character available in Veneer, I am now trying to decide if I should be using it for my tabletop to create something more than just a nice table. Should I make the tabletop plywood and veneer? Uh, oh yeah, and then veneer that, or should I stick with solid wood and veneer the individual pieces, or should I forget about veneer altogether? All right, for me, this is just an yes. opinion. Totally an opinion thing, because these are all kind of acceptable choices. I don't really, most times I don't think you need to worry about veneering solid wood. You can, but it's not some, I mean, it's something I did in the humidor build, but there was some logic to it. The reason why we did that uh, using Spanish cedar in a case of a dining room table, I don't really think there is much need to veneer solid wood. Uh, so if you're going to go with the veneer, I think plywood or MDF is a reasonable core. Uh, my preference is plywood, but for a dining room table, I mean, I guess it depends on your living situation. I know with me, I would want solid wood because I know that after my son beats this thing up for five or six or seven or eight years, that I yeah. would actually be able to go back into the shop, scrape it down, plane the top down and refinish it. And it's going to look brand new. Uh, you don't really have that luxury so much with veneer. I mean, you could do a little bit of repair work on it, but ultimately something, you know, too much damage on that top is actually going to create quite a bit of a problem for you in terms of repair. So I think if uh, if you're ready to do like the end all be all dining room table and you just want to impress your your friends and family, uh, go for the veneer, you know, buy something really, really nice, heavily figured and, and do it up nice. Um, but if you are looking for something for the sake of durability, like the average kitchen table, I personally, I think solid wood is going to be the, the better way to go for that. But largely a opinion and very situational sort of decision, I think. I think restraint is something to think about, too. You know, a dining room table is a big surface, it and is. if you have a lot of interesting veneer and figure, sometimes it can overwhelm on such a large surface like that. Yeah, very yeah. true. And, and if you get, especially looking at the humidor, we're talking about something that was very small. So, so what right. I went for on that was like, boom, knock you out when you see the kind of figure it is. Over a large scale, you're totally right. It can be, it can be almost tacky. 
Um, and very expensive for that, that, that too. big. <laughs> that too. Uh, all right. Uh, who's, okay, who's let's see. Timberdock said, I just watched uh, Rob Millard's Portsmouth side table video, which that's in the um, Popular Woodworkings offering that on their Shop Class On Demand site. Mm-hmm. It's very cool, by the way. Multi-part series. I, I really enjoyed it. Anyway, he uses heated and thinned hide glue to be able to place and replace pieces of veneer and banding to cut various miters and field pieces. Does the liquid hide glue... Um, I've seen tight bond at the store. Does that work as well as classic hide glue for this? If so, what do you use to thin glue? If not, please explain the processes needed to go into making traditional hide glues and any other ha- insights on hammer veneering. I don't know if we can give too many insights on hammer veneering in a short amount of time, but mm-hmm. there is a difference between liquid hide glue and uh, regular mixed up heated hide glue. Uh, first of all, there is a, um, uh, there are ureas in the liquid stuff that allow it to, to maintain that gel texture, and it will set up a little bit slower than the heated stuff. Um, and that's why traditionally we heat up high glue and use that for veneer because it tacks up very quickly. And it's something where you can hammer veneer a surface. And hammer veneering is basically using like a squeegee to kind of press it down and push out all the extra glue and all the air. And you essentially create kind of a vacuum. And that hot high glue tacks up very, very quickly that you don't need any kind of clamping work. And that's what we're talking about, especially in um, Robert Millard's uh, federal piece. There's a lot of different pieces to the veneer. He's got cross banding and and, um, other banding and different types of banding and inlay and field banding. All this stuff's got to go together and you need it to set up and not shift around on you. So you want a short working time and hot high glue will start to tack up, um, you know, in minutes. Um, And that, of course, it depends on how you mix it and how you mix it is just by diluting with water. And you will find people that have various opinions on how dilute does it need to be. It also depends upon how refined is the glue that you use to start with. So if you go to somebody like uh, Tools for Working Wood to buy your high glue, you'll find different um, qualities or different refinements of high glue. And the really, really heavily refined stuff is going to set up really, really quickly, I think. Now, I can't remember if I'm reversing that or not. Um, go to their webpage and it tells you right there <laughs> whether it sets up quickly or not. I think it sets up quicker the more refined it is because there's less impurities to get in the way and it gels out very, very quickly. So that's the biggest difference is is set time. Uh, I think you'll find it's a little bit easier to reverse too because as fast as it sets up, you can also unset it with a little bit of heat. So there you go. Good deal. Sometimes I get a little unsettled with a little heat, too. But mm-hmm. That's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. All right, last question comes from Billy, and Billy says, I recently acquired the Incra LS positioner router system and finally have it all assembled. The fence is aluminum, and the table is basic for mica. When the fence move, which is often as that is the point of the system, it makes an ungodly screech, probably like me when I discover there's no more food in the refrigerator. I would like to treat the top so that I may eliminate the noise. My fear is using a lubricating product that may stain the wood or affect it adversely later when I put a finish on it. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, don't worry about it, to be quite honest with you. I, I, I responded to Billy and told him my favorite thing to use is just simple beeswax or just a wax. Um, I put a little bit on there, and when it comes to being concerned about it affecting the finish of a, uh, a project – Chances are more than likely once you're done with what you're doing here, you're going to end up doing some sort of sanding on the piece or maybe even planing depending on what it is. 
it, that the, any little bit of wax is going to be removed anyways. And chances are just through friction, the wax is going to be removed anyhow. So it's kind of a non-issue. And if I remember right, a long time ago, Mr. Chris Schwartz had an article talking about this too, where people were freaking out about wax in the bottom of hand, hand plane soles. And he basically was pointing out the same exact fact that just natural friction and the little bit that you have on there, it's not going to affect it. Good. Yeah, I think know. he. I think he consulted Bob Flexner on that too. So anybody. Well, if Bob Flexner isn't on that, then you know it's a non-issue. Yeah, that it do be. All right. Did you know that you can leave us a review on iTunes? Simply look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt if those legs go all the way up. Oh <laughs> yes, they do. They go up for days. Did you guys Man. ever see that Family Guy? Uh, <laughs> yes. Ready? Here, I got it right here. Hey, baby, do those legs go all the way up? Why, yes, they do. Ah! Oh, my God, you're a monster! Come back! My legs are shaved like a little girl! <laughs> it's the funniest thing. You have thing. no idea how many times that happens in real life. <laughs> oh, man. I love that you just had that readily available. <laughs> I had it queued up, man. I was like, I've got to play it. But uh, if you get a chance, go look that up, because it's incredibly disturbing to watch. Uh, those legs go all the way up. All right. Well, we'd like to uh, thank JDB or J.D. Brown, 1998, Oklahoma woodworker, George 1112, I can't read these numbers, 1122, and Cowpel 24, uh, who had this to say, I discovered the podcast a few months ago. I've known about it for a lot longer, but didn't bother listening because I thought it was all power tools, and I'm mostly a hand tool woodworker. As it turns out, the show covers all types of woodworking in an engaging and entertaining way. Now I look forward to listening every week. Well, we're glad we... Uh, Showed you the light. Showed you that we actually don't focus. <laughs> That's how focus. we handle woodworkers are. We just put our fingers on our ear. No, power tools. <laughs> no, nah, nah, nah. no, they must be. Must be power tools. Yeah, I mean, I well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because of me and I don't know. Because Matt, you've always had a little bit of a, a, a hand tool bent, if you will. And, and That was the original hand tool podcaster. Yeah, you usually right. covered the all the... original podcaster. That's but. true. That's true. But anyway, all right. Well, I'm glad we got you listening now and uh, welcome to the show. We appreciate that. And thanks to everybody who left us other five-star reviews. We always appreciate those. And you want to remember that today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. And also, you can go to TWWStore.com and pick up your Wood Talk t-shirt because it's awesome and you'll look beautiful wearing it. Oh, God, yes, especially if you've got legs that go on for days. That's true. I'll just lead right up to the bottom of that T-shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you can also help us out with a recurring or one-time donation. If you go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in the side column, you'll see some links for that. We always appreciate that. And we'd like to thank Tom B. and Tim W. who did just that. And helping us with that financial support is what keeps us going here. It pays the bills, keeps that hosting going. Because you know what? We're getting a lot of listeners, guys. Those numbers are going up. Nice. Yeah. And you know what? Getting that bandwidth so that those those audio files keep downloading fast, which I'm sure most of you notice they do, does not come free. So it costs us money to keep this uh, thing going. No uh, matter how many times we go in and storm in there and like, give it to us for free. They just get out, sir. Exactly. All right, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right, folks, if you have a comment, question, or topic suggestion, there are several different ways you can contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Woodtalk Online, or you can use our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, or you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, and preferably you'll use a name that has numeral, numerous numbers in it so that we can throw Mark <laughs> off also. He yes. really loves that, trying to get through all those numbers. Mm-hmm. And you can also leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page where you can use the number scheme there too. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. 
There you go. And you know, you can leave comments there as well, because we don't often get to all the kickback because we get a lot of kickback. So that's a great point. Feel free to kick back in the comments. Well, in fact, a large number of our kickback things are actually more appropriate to be comments. They just kind of move the discussion along as opposed to being something that we would feel inclined to bring up on the show. Um, So we want your uh, voice to be heard. So go ahead. It doesn't take much to just kind of run over there, leave a comment. You don't need to log into anything. You just uh, leave the comment and the conversation will continue it's pretty awesome and let me just point out one more thing about the kickback is uh many of you have sent stuff in and occasionally it does not make it onto into the kickback area and that's oftentimes because woodworkers we seem to think alike and so oftentimes that kickback is a reiteration of the reiteration that's true very true all right well thank you for listening everybody remember if the legs do go all the way up that may not necessarily be a good thing (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, buddy. Have you seen mine lately? Especially on an 80-inch TV. <laughs> That's true. I did. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.